Well, as Mark said, we'll be in Psalm 119, if you want to turn there. But before we look at it together, if you don't know the name William Wilberforce, you should. Born in 1759 to a very wealthy family, he inherited a fortune while still a teenager, and he partied his way through university, and at the ripe old age of 21, decided on a political career, not, sad to say, from a sense of duty. He continued to serve in parliament for another 40 years, and only uh, resigned at the age of 70 because of crippling health problems. Uh, Despite his family's best efforts to keep him from being influenced by the evangelical revival that had taken place in the generation before, he actually became a Christian in his mid-twenties, about the age of 26. A friend was sharing some good Christian literature with him, went on this long journey together, and he was converted. And his whole life changed. He turned away from the kind of licentious, self-centered lifestyle that he had, And he began pursuing God. He gave up selfish pleasures. And we're told almost immediately from that time he began to rise early. He was reading his Bible in the mornings. And he wrestled with whether or not to continue in politics. We know the rest of the story. But at that point, his conscience kind of struck him. I didn't get into politics for the right reason. And so he went to a notable uh, leader, Christian leader at his time, a guy named... John Newton, you know him because he wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. And Newton said, you got to continue. You have important things to do for the kingdom of God. And so he served in the English parliament for almost the rest of his life. And we remember him today because he made it his life's work to end the enslavement of people in Africa and their sale in Britain's empire. And we should give thanks every time we think of him. Give thanks to God. I encourage you to read a good biography of Wilberforce if you don't know him. Listen to John Piper's little message on his life. It's just about an hour long. But when we go looking for the roots of Wilberforce's life-altering pursuit, what we find is a delight in the Bible. Here was a man who had it all. In our own modern terms, he was living his best life now. And he turned away from it all, the passing pleasures of life, because he was radically committed to God's written word. Let me just give one example. He records this kind of in passing in his diary, uh, about three quarters of the way into his political career. He says, I, I, uh, I, I said the whole of Psalm 119 to myself as I was walking to Parliament this morning. His walk's about 20 minutes. Psalm 119 is about 20 minutes. He had it memorized by heart. And the whole thing comes out in this this perfect timing. And he says, it gave me great comfort. It gave me great comfort. His life was essentially a battle from the time that he openly stated, I am going to to defend the cause of abolition. And it's going to be my life's goal to end slavery. And he, he found... His comfort in Scripture in the midst of life's battles. And I would add it's because he delighted 
he delighted in God's word because of the mercies that he found there. And those three elements, delight, mercies, and comfort, form the three themes of the stanzas we'll be looking at today in Psalm 119. Watch for those as we read here. If you have a copy of the scriptures, we're in Psalm 119, starting in verse 33. If not, you can follow on the screen here. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts and your righteousness. Give me life. Let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then shall I have an answer for him who taunts me, for I trust in your word. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your rules. I will keep your law continually forever and ever, and I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts. I will also speak of your testimonies before kings and shall not be put to shame for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. I will lift up my hands toward your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. Remember your word to your servant, in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promises give me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me, but I have kept your precepts. Psalm 119, 33 through 56. This is the word of the Lord. And we're in this passage today because we're in the midst of a sermon on this, the longest of the Psalms, because we want to develop an appetite for God's word. And we see today three ways that God's word should draw us to it. The first one is that God's word provides delight that dwarfs the passing pleasures of earth. Let's begin at the end of this stanza in verse 40. He says, I long for your precepts. The psalmist simply voices this desire that moves him. He's activated, he says. He's motivated by a longing for God's word. And look at, as well at verse 35. He says, lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. He says he finds his delight in following God's word. And yet, notice this, 
he still asks for God's help to continue in it. I find my delight in it, but I also need your help. Lead me in it, he says. We see the same thing uh, in verse, verses 33 and 34. He prays for help to gain understanding. God's word is delightful, and yet he needs God's support in order to pursue it. That should, that should just create a question in our minds. Why is that? Why is it that a good thing doesn't become an overwhelmingly controlling thing in this sense? He desires it. Why doesn't it naturally eclipse all other desires and put them in the background? I think we get the answer in verses 36 and 37. Look here. The fleeting pleasures of earth tend to distract us from the greater pleasures of knowing God's word. Look in 36 and 37. He says, incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Something similar in 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. The things of this earth are passing away, but they're still captivating. They still hold a certain power over us. And so we need God's help to seek the things that are a bit better, things that are eternal. And in this life, we find those things specifically in God's word. That's what the psalmist teaches us here. In fact, the way that we know God himself is through his word. Knowing God is far better, far more satisfying than earthly pleasures, even the greatest imaginable success, any sensual pleasure that you can imagine, recognition from your peers, human love, financial independence. These things are dwarfed by God himself. And if you know him, you know this is true, even if in your own experience it's been fleeting at best. Those times when you have seen the face of God in his word and you've been liberated, freed up from lesser things. And the psalmist knows that experience. I know that God is better, but I find myself turning back at times. And the place where I find God specifically is in his written word. It's in the scriptures that we find God. So he asks for help to keep his eyes here. He says these earthly joys are selfish gain. Ultimately, they don't come from a God-centered delight, but from a self-centered delight. And he's not talking about all earthly joys. He's talking about those that are disconnected from a love of God. The ones that begin and end in ourselves. That's why he calls them selfish gain. And so he calls them worthless by comparison. This word worthless is the same word that we find in the Ten Commandments where we have this commandment, don't take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Don't use it in some sort of empty, meaningless way. Just treating it as if it's nothing. So also, these earthly things... By comparison to God, anything that's separated from him is by comparison worthless. The only things that have meaning and value are those things that lead us closer to him. Those things that have real eternal significance. Any pleasure of earth that doesn't have its roots in God or isn't connected to him by faith has no staying power. 
There are earthly pleasures that have value so long as they honor God, and we should give thanks for them. God's given them to us. They are gifts, and we're meant to receive them from him and to return to him. Thanks. I think of Mary's uh, and Martha's experience. You know this uh, story from the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Jesus comes to town. Martha's serving her tail off, and she, uh, Mary, her sister, is sitting and listening to Jesus. And Martha says, uh, Jesus, aren't you going to tell her to come serve with me? <laughs> Uh, and Jesus gives a surprising response. He says, no, she's actually chosen something that's better. She's chosen something that's better, seeing the face of God. So I'm not going to take the better portion from her. And there's this kind of gentle chastisement, even service, surprisingly. Even service can itself, if disconnected from intentionally honoring the Lord, can, can become a lesser thing, a worthless thing, something that's passing. The things that have value, the better portion, is seeing the face of God. And for those of us who are alive today, that means seeing the face of God in Scripture. So the psalmist says the pleasures of knowing God through his word, the written Scriptures, are far better. And he asks for help to keep his eyes on them. The passing, the passing pleasures of selfish gain and worthless things still have attraction. There's a seductive power to them, even for the believer who knows they will not last. So the psalmist asks for this help. This whole stanza, really, 33 through 40, is one long request for help. Verse 33, teach me, he says, because he obviously hasn't learned the lesson well enough. Verse 34, give me understanding because I'm tempted to make bad decisions still. Verse 35, lead me, because I tend to go astray. But I want to focus on verses 36 and 37, because they add a special emphasis on the kind of help that we need. In verse 36, he says, he prays, incline my heart to your testimonies. That's a really good translation. I think probably all of our English translations use that word, incline my heart. Uh, the word it, behind incline means something like stretch out or bend towards, in this case. Bend my heart, the inner place where my desires come from. Bend it back towards your word. It needs to be shaped, reshaped, that is. It's gotten bent towards these other things. And I pray, Lord, will you do that work of taking it and forcing it back towards you? I know that I will need outside help to accomplish this. Bend my inner desires, my hopes, my attentions, my daydreams, my fears, my anxieties. May they all be directed back so they find their solution in your word. Incline my heart to your testimonies. And we see something very similar in verse 37. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Again, I don't think he just means explicitly sinful things. He means anything that's disconnected or doesn't lead us closer to God. Anything that's disconnected from specifically helping us honor God. And yet he himself uh, finds that he still has an interest in them. I still find myself turning back to them at times. So turn my eyes away from them. Give me help not to get wrapped up in longings for these 
passing pleasures, these things that won't last, and turn me towards the things that bring me closer to you, O God, specifically your written word. Where do your desires tend to go when your mind wanders, when you just let yourself daydream? Where do, you, where do your longings go? Where are your hopes when you think about the future? You're talking with a dear friend. Maybe you're talking with your boss at work, talking with your spouse. These are the things that I want to accomplish with my life. What comes to mind? What fears keep you awake at night? What overtakes you? What seems to have control of you? If you step back from your life, get a little perspective and think, yeah, these are the controlling thoughts. The psalmist knows these challenges. He knows the thoughts that we all experience as believers. He knows the distracting power of lesser delights. And he seeks a solution for himself in the word of God by praying to God, turn me back towards your word. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Bend my willful heart towards your written word, O oh God, because that's where solid, lasting delight and satisfaction is found. Because this is where I find you, God. This is where you've reached out to us, revealed yourself to us in your written word. When you find yourself wrestling with desires and daydreams about worthless things, pray this prayer and turn to the scriptures. Remember Wilberforce, a guy who had it all and found the, the strength to resist lesser delights in God's word. God's word provides the delight that dwarfs the passing pleasures of earth. As we turn to the second stanza, we see that God's word promises mercies that strengthen the rescued. That is, God's word promises mercies that strengthen those who have been rescued. I take that word mercies from verse 41. My translation reads, let your steadfast love come to me, O Lord. Uh, in place of steadfast love, your translation might have favor or something like that. It, those are both really good translations. That's the way that uh, it's translated all throughout the Old Testament. It's, it's almost always translated that way. Or loving kindness. You may know that word if you use the New American Standard. But something that's interesting here is that word is plural in this passage. And it's not often plural uh, in the Old Testament. We much more frequently find it in the singular. So I'm trying to capture that. We're not just talking about steadfast love singular. We're talking about steadfast loves, <laughs> mercies. I think is the best way to capture it here. And this is not just, I, I think the idea is this is not just one occurrence of God's favor that the psalmist is asking for help to focus on. or He's asking for an experience of God's love that's repeated. I want those examples of your love to me, Lord, that happen over and over. And so we can capture that variety with this plural noun, mercies. Grammar lesson almost over. Forgive me. Interestingly, this plural noun mercies is actually parallel. If you look again there at verse 41, it's parallel in the second half of that verse with a singular noun, your salvation. 
And uh, as we're reading the Psalms, one of the most helpful ways to, to understand them and to deepen your delight in them is by comparing parallelisms within the Psalms themselves. So as you're reading line by line, oftentimes there's a comparison or a contrast from one line to the next. And as you, as you think on those things, this is where you'll find the, the depth that we need to really understand what God's word is saying, to find that richness. I think the sweetness that this psalmist experienced here. So the plural mercies in the first half of this line is parallel to the singular salvation in the second half of this line. And I think this is a helpful comparison for us. Uh, we, we find um, that as we, as we meditate on these comparisons, uh, I hope the Psalms imprint themselves on your heart. And let me just give a couple of places where your experience of salvation, uh, let me give a couple of examples of how our experience of salvation is singular and our experience of mercies is multiple or various. Our experience of God's salvation is singular because as a follower of God, he has promised to reconcile us to himself on a one-time, single-occasion basis. If you have put your faith in Jesus, you have been brought into a new relationship with God that cannot be broken. It's complete from the start. And so salvation is a singular experience for Christians. If you don't know this, maybe you're not a Christian, I, I pray just think on these things. There is so much to be learned here that God, who we're naturally separated from because of our brokenness, would in, enter into a relationship with us knowing who we are, knowing that we'll fail even after we enter into a relationship with him. His salvation or his rescue of us, if you will, is singular. It's one time. It's complete from the beginning, and he saves us to the uttermost, Hebrews tells us. When a man or woman turns to God, they are converted. They are rescued completely. And no further work is necessary on your part or on the part of God to maintain that relationship. It is done and I like this idea of, of rescue. I like calling it rescue because this reminds us that God came to us while we were lost. That God, can, God is like a father. This is one of those parables that Jesus tells frequently. He compares God to a father who knew that his own children had wandered away from him, had broken the relationship, and this father goes after them. Here is a father who rescues the lost. He is a rescuing God. And we'll return to that idea of rescue in just a moment. For now, just recognize this. Salvation is a one-time event. And yet, we have these multiple and various experience of God's mercies throughout our life as well. This is the plural mercies. I'm thinking of the 10,000 experiences of forgiveness that a believer has when they confess their sin and turn back to God and realize he has forgiven me for this also. I sinned again this morning 
And now I must turn to him again. And I find again a new experience of his mercy. He hasn't shunned me. He keeps me near to him. And he continues to, to answer my requests for help. God sends us help when we face troubles in our life. He encourages us to call out to him. And he promises he'll answer our requests. This is not a promise of an easy, no-cost, low-risk lifestyle. But it is a promise that God will meet your needs every time you ask him until he brings you safely home to himself. And the psalmist says that both of these things, the one-time rescue of salvation and the, the multiple repeated experience of mercies day by day, are both promised in God's word. That's the, the closing part of line 41 there. Because he knows that God has promised these things, he calls on God, fulfill your promise to us. The prayer of verse 41 is a request for God to do what he has said he would do. As we, as we think on that, where he's saying, fulfill what you've, what you've said, fulfill your promise. What, what saying of God might he have in mind here? What promise could he be thinking of? It's hard to say exactly. He doesn't give us a whole lot of data. Maybe he's thinking of the promise to Eve, that he would crush the head of the serpent through her seed, one of her descendants, perhaps. Maybe he's thinking of the promise to the wandering people of Israel that he would raise up another prophet, a prophet like Moses, who would speak God's word to them. I think, though, probably the promise in view here is the promise made to David. The promise made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Like Ryan pointed out to us a couple of weeks ago, the Psalms are really focused on David, the great king, and on the greater son of David who would come from him. The anointed one, or as we call him oftentimes, the Messiah. Great David's greater son becomes the one who fulfills the Psalms perfectly. He's the one who can sing the lines of the Psalms and say, I have fulfilled this. And so as we think about that promise to David, specifically the, the promise was this. David wanted to build a house for God, a temple. And God said, Actually, David, I'm going to build a house for you. This house is in the sense of a dynasty, a kingdom that will last forever. And your son, David, will rule on that throne forever. He's going to bring the promised blessing to earth, a kingdom that will last forever where peace and justice will reign, where there will be no more sorrow or suffering, a kingdom unlike any we've, we've experienced better than any democracy could ever dream of. And this promise of a king who will reign and bring in perfect peace and justice, the one who would rule over the house of David, the great son of David, I think is probably the promise that we should think of here when he says, I want you, I want your steadfast love, I want your mercies to come to us, O Lord, your salvation according to what you've promised to us. He's thinking of the great son of David. And we find some confirmation of this because this word salvation here, this word for salvation, somewhat common in the Old Testament, it's also the root 
of the name Jesus. If you go back to the Hebrew of the, the, behind the, the name of Jesus, it's this word Yeshua, and it's the same, it has the same root of salvation here. And that's why Jesus is called what he is. We're told in Matthew 121, you'll call his name Jesus, that is the Lord saves, because he's going to save his people from their sins. So when the psalmist says here, please keep your promise to us, I pray that your salvation would come to us. He's thinking of the Savior, the Rescuer, the one who will bring in God's final promise, according to David. This request for salvation in verse 41 finds its fulfillment ultimately in Jesus, both the one-time rescue, that experience of salvation, and the many mercies, day-by-day forgiveness, as you and I turn to God again and again and ask for help in our times of need, we're fulfilled by Jesus when he died for our sins on the cross and for the sins of all who would believe in him. And he was resurrected again. The great hope of the Old Testament and the fulfillment of it in Jesus are summarized in this verse here, I think. But the psalmist points out one more thing, that the promise of these mercies strengthens those who have been rescued. The promise of these mercies provides a certain strength in the midst of our lives. So look, for instance, at verse 42, these pro- this, this promise enables those who are mocked to give an answer because God's word is wiser than all the scoffing of the enemies of God's people. It puts a word of truth in the mouth of those who are rescued. Verse 43. It gives them liberty. Verse 45. Literally, it says, we will walk in a wide place. I'll walk in a wide place. That is, I'm not boxed in anymore. I have liberty to move freely, even though I am surrounded by enemies. I don't have this sense of claustrophobia. Your promise gives strength because it provides this liberty to me. Verse 46, it gives me courage to speak before kings and authorities. Ultimately, this strength comes from a delight in God's word, as he says in verse 47. And so, of course, the psalmist ends by saying at the end of this stanza, I love your word, twice. I love your commandments, verses 47 and 48. So as we seek to develop an appetite for God's word, a love for it, Consider how the mercies that we find promised here provide strength for you day by day. When you're mocked, the answer to those who taunt you is found in the promise, ultimately in the promise of Jesus, which we find in God's word. When you feel boxed in, unable to move freely, The liberty you desire is found here in God's word, ultimately in the fulfillment given to us through Jesus. When you speak before authorities, your testimony should reflect the message and the method of God's word. This is how you will not be ashamed. So pray these prayers, brothers and sisters. Pray these prayers if you want to grow in your delight in God's word. God's word is intended to be the path that leads us back to him, the path we walk to find our rescuer. It is the love note from the lover of our souls 
It is the lens through which we see God. Because it's here that God has revealed himself to us. God's word promises mercies that strengthen the rescued. And the final stanza shows us that God's word presents comforts that sweeten the hardships of the pilgrimage. We heard of mockers in the second stanza, and their insults are sort of the backdrop of this stanza here, this third paragraph that we're looking at. In verse 50, he speaks of how God's word provides comfort in his affliction, and he spells out that what that affliction is in the very next verse, verse 51, he says, the insolent utterly deride me. That is, I'm being mocked regularly by scoffers of some sort. Probably they're mocking him for following God's word because he says in the second half of that verse, verse 51, even though they mock me, I'm not going to turn aside from your word. Have you been in this place, brothers and sisters, mocked for following God's word? Perhaps you've been told that God's word is unenlightened, intolerant, a series of myths and fairy tales that have been brought into our culture. Maybe you've been told that it was written by ignorant and superstitious people. It's the product of an unenlightened culture and a cruel God. I think the psalmist must have heard something like this. He's being told something like that. Why do you follow those old wives' tales? Why are you still listening to those myths? And his response is fitting for us. He says, even so, I don't, don't turn away from your law, Lord. My comfort in my affliction is that your promise gives me life, he says. There will be times when you will be able to answer those who taunt you, taunt you, like in verse 42, the previous stanza that we saw, there are other times where it will not be possible for one reason or another for you to give an answer and you'll be left to basically sit in the scoffing. In either case, the comfort we need is not being able to silence the mockers. And this may be news for some of us because we get so wrapped up in the daily news cycle and the culture wars that surround us and certain elements within our political sphere try and grab evangelicalism and act as if they own us, if we are part of their voting block. Not so. The comfort we have is not in being able to silence scoffers and mockers. The comfort we have is in God's promise, ultimately. Mockers will continue to mock. Jesus said, in this life, you're going to continue having trouble. <laughs> He didn't promise an end of trouble when you start following him. In this life you'll have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world, he says. And so we can say, my comfort in my affliction is your promise, O Lord, your word to us, the way that you fulfilled those promises in Jesus. And specifically, I want to keep in mind here that he's looking at the written word of God. This is not just some abstract abstract concept sort of promises that exist out there somewhere my comfort and my affliction lord is your written testimonies and as an old testament believer he would have been thinking of these promises that god made promises that his people god's people would live in god's place under god's rule and blessing and as and those came of course through moses and then through the prophets as well. And as New Testament believers, 
we think of the promise ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And that's written down in our Gospels. We have two eyewitnesses who give us what they saw, their own eyewitness account of Jesus crucified and resurrected. And we have, that's Matthew and John. And we have two eyewitnesses, Mark and Luke, who tell us what they researched. They talk to other eyewitnesses. And Luke tells us, I'm telling you thing, these things because I want you to have certainty, Luke 1, 4, of the things that you have been told. This is well-researched. This is documented. I talked to as many eyewitnesses as I could. So God's word, his written word, provides for us a promise that gives us comfort in our affliction. Jesus was crucified for your sins, and he has been resurrected. On the third day, he was raised again, and he lives now for us so that in your affliction, you can have comfort knowing that the resurrected one stands on your side. You can see the face of God in Jesus in the written scriptures. And I love this phrase describing how God's comforting word sweetens the hardships of the pilgrimage. Uh, those words are in quotation there because I took them from somebody else. Franz Delich, in his commentary on the Psalms, summarizes verse 54 this way. Look at verse 54. Your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. And the, the psalmist is acknowledging that we lack a, a, sort of, a sort of home here, if you will. We are like pilgrims on the way from one place to the next. We talked a little bit about this last week. We're like foreigners traveling through somebody else's land, strangers and aliens dislocated from our own people oftentimes. And the ancient Jewish pilgrims would have known this. They're going back to the temple after they've been conquered by outside powers. And they would sing songs as they were returning to the temple. We, to the temple. And, and we have a, a whole list of these psalms in, uh, in the, the Psalms of Ascent. But these songs were meant to sweeten the hardships that they experienced in their pilgrimage. And so also God's word does for us. In your life, when you experience hardships... You're not just supposed to have some vague idea that God cares and is out there. We're supposed to have explicit testimony that's on our hearts so that like Wilberforce, we can walk those paths and say to ourselves, this is what God has promised to me and this is how he's fulfilled it in these exact words written down for us to sweeten the hardships of the pilgrimage. In the midst of our life's journey, God's word becomes the songs of those who suffer on the path. And it provides comfort. That word comfort occurs twice here in verses 50 and 52. It describes what God is providing for us. And just in closing here, he makes it just a little bit more practical to us. Verse 55, isn't this our experience frequently? I remember your, na your name in the night, oh Lord, you wake up, some anxiety has taken a hold of you, and you can't go back to sleep. And the psalmist says, I remember your name, which is a, a summary of your character, is who you are. Again, the point here is we meet God himself in his word. I love what Augustine said. He said, 
when you read God's word, think of it. Think of it as the face of God. Because as we live right now, this is how he has intended to reveal himself to us. We see the face of God most clearly in the word of God because these are his inspired words for us. They're meant to provide delight for us. They do, in fact, promise mercies to us. And they also present us with comfort to sweeten the hardships of pilgrimage. Let's pray together. Father, we do ask that you would give these things to us. We pray, Lord, that your word would be our delight. Bend our hearts away. Reshape us, Lord. We are willfully wrong so frequently. We know what's good and we find ourselves turning to lesser passing pleasures. Incline our hearts to your testimonies. Lord, we pray. Thank you for fulfilling your salvation promise to us. Thank you for rescuing us when we were lost and for showing us mercies day by day through the great son of David, Jesus. And we ask, O oh Lord, provide comfort for us in our pilgrimage. Through these songs, through your written word, write these testimonies on our heart. May your word be a light to our path and a lamp to our feet. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.